Another edition of the Behind the You podcast, and we're bringing back Coach L because we have a lot to talk about. We couldn't squeeze it into one episode. So, Coach, thanks for doing this again. Oh, my pleasure, Josh. So, you gave a speech a few years ago at UM, but I believe it's probably more than just a speech and a talk. It's it's probably something that is a, another cornerstone of what you believe and and how you I would say coach your players off the court. Or maybe it's a combination of, of helping them on the court, but also helping them grow in life. And those four characteristics and cornerstones are leadership, discipline, teamwork, and habit. And I was wondering how you came across those four, maybe why they're important and sort of what they mean to you and what you're trying to pass along. We feel as coaches uh, at the University of Miami, our responsibility is not just to prepare our players for performance on the court, but to teach them life skills so they can be successful long after their basketball careers are over. We want them to learn what basically life is all about. The first characteristic you mentioned was leadership. So the way we view leadership is simply this. A leader needs to create a vision, a crystal clear picture of how he or she wants the team to function. That picture has to include, or the coach's leadership has to include the ability to motivate, inspire, and then empower the members of the team to make that vision a reality, that leadership is not just setting the example. Setting the example is part of it, but teaching it and sharing with it and motivating and inspiring the members of your team so that they want to live that vision, that you want them to buy into it and be excited about the direction the leader wants the team to go in. The second characteristic, discipline, is a very simple definition that we use. Discipline is simply this. Do what you're supposed to do. Do it when you're supposed to do it. And do it to the best of your ability every single time. So often, people tend to think, hey, if I like this and I work hard, everything will work out. But quite frankly, most people are not disciplined enough to really make their dreams come true. Once the vision is created, then it's up to the team to make the vision come alive. And the only way to do that is through discipline, self-discipline. Every individual has to buy into their role. They got to know what their role is and they've got to be able to buy into it and execute it. The third principle was teamwork. And that's really what I was referring to. Teamwork is about synergy where the uh, whole is greater than the sum of all its parts. So you have in basketball, five starters and maybe six or seven subs. If only the starters practice well or play well, you're not going to be very good. You need a team effort, a total team effort. Everybody's got to buy into the vision. Everybody's got to understand you may not even like your role, but you need to buy into it and execute it because most players who don't start want to be starters. Most starters who are not the leading scorer want to be the leading scorer. You can't just say, uh, under certain conditions, then I'll buy into the team concept. If I get to shoot a lot, if I'm the leading scorer, if I get all the publicity, if I'm all conference, then I'll buy into the vision. It can't be that way. It's got to be a team effort where everybody's headed in, in the same direction. Every team can only have one leading scorer. Every team can have only one leading rebounder. And yet, Everybody on the team can make a huge contribution defensively and rebounding because on offense, you can dribble too much. You can even pass too much. You can shoot too much, but you can't rebound too much. You can't play too much defense. 
those are the things that players need to realize and people in general need to realize you're not going to have everything you want. Life is not about jumping into your sports car, putting the pedal to the metal and just going on a super highway as fast as you want in the right direction. Life is about being on a roller coaster. There's ups and downs. There's adversity everywhere you turn. I don't care what career you're pursuing. Everybody has responsibility, whether it as a husband, a father, a parent, a son, a daughter. Everybody's got responsibilities to somebody else. And understanding what teamwork is, is living up to that responsibility, having the discipline to do it every day consistently well. And then the last thing is habits. And habits are simply the things you develop, and that's how you live. All the habits you develop is going to be how you live your life. A good example might be how you eat. Everybody eats based on habit, the foods they like, the foods they don't like, when they eat, how much they eat, and then it's very hard to change those habits. Just ask anybody who's trying to stick on a diet. It's hard to stick to a diet because the diet means you're not getting what you like. And that's usually the good stuff. Yeah, well, that's me. I'm someone who cannot stick to any diet and try to lose weight. But what we've taught our players, what we believe is in the Dr. Stephen Covey book and video, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That book changed my life and my coaching career. Dr. Covey is a brilliant uh, psychologist, and he's written a number of great best-selling books. But the first one that I read, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the very first habit is be proactive. And I would tell my players all the time, be proactive. What does it mean? Plan ahead. Have a plan for everything you do. If you're a big man, have a plan for how you're going to score in around the basket. If you're a three-point shooter, have a plan of the shots you're going to look for and the shots you're going to turn down. You've got to be selective. If we're running an offense, know the offense. That's the habit. We're trying to develop the habits on offense. Make good passes, call for the ball, find the open man. Those are all habits that you develop in practice that you then want to utilize in a game. The second habit is begin with the end in mind. And basically what that is, set goals. You begin the season. Well, what's, what's our goal? Where do we want to be at the end of the season? Do we want to be at the top of the ACC? Do we want to be in the NCAA tournament? Because if you begin the season with the end in mind and you have set lofty goals, and then you're willing to work towards it. So when we talked before a practice, Josh, I'll say, say to the guys, okay, we're beginning practice. Where are we going to be at the end of the practice? Begin with the end in mind. Are we going to be better at the end of this day or worse? Because if you just go through the motions, we're getting worse, not better. We've got to develop the right habits. If we're sloppy, we turn the ball over, don't get back on defense, don't block out, we're just going to get worse. But if we come to practice, understanding that our objective today is to get better and that we've got to be sharp in our execution of the practice plan, then we have a chance of improving. The third habit is prioritize your priorities, all right? So it's one thing to, to say that these things are important. Dr. Stevens Covey says it this way, put first things first, prioritize your priorities. So that's kind of my expression. So if your priority is defense, you better put that early in practice because that's when your players have the most energy. 
if shooting is the most important thing, well, you better put that at a time when your players can be productive and shoot the ball really well and feel confident in their shooting. Put first things first is a very important message. It's what we tell our players about their schoolwork. Get your homework done. When you get back to your dormitory, don't put on the TV. Don't go on your phone and start playing video games. Do your homework first. Do your studying first. That's the number one priority. And when you put first things first, you're going to have a better habit that when you graduate from college, you will know that, hey, this is a really important habit to develop. One of my former players, his name is Joe Gregory. He's a pastor in Atlanta, has his own church and congregation. He and his wife have raised uh, two children. And when Joe Gregory was my starting point guard at Bowling Green State University back in 1986, so 34, 35 years ago, Joe Gregory was playing for me. And by the time he graduated, he couldn't stand me. He was like, this guy, he's got us up running in the morning. He's got us lifting weights. I've never had so many demands put on me in my time. I, I don't know why he does this. So Joe Gregory lives in Atlanta. My wife joined us for our game at Georgia Tech two years ago before COVID. And Joe Gregory, I invited him to come to the game and he sat with my wife. And he said to her, Mrs. L, all the things I complained about Coach L and his discipline and all the things he asked me to do, basically asked the whole team to do, that I hated, I'm doing now every day of my adult life. I get up every morning at 6 a.m. I say my prayers. I get my exercise in. I organize my day. I have developed the habits that Coach L encouraged us to develop 35 years ago. So that's very rewarding for me to know that a young man not only did it because he had to when he was playing for me, but he developed those habits and took them with him as an adult. And then he even said, and I'm making my children do the same thing. So he's getting a chance to pay them back. Then you have think win-win, which is about basically understanding the idea of compromise. It can't always be just your way. You got to work with others. Uh, the fifth habit is seek first to understand and then to be understood, which basically means listen. One of the most important qualities I can have as a coach is listen to my players. I need to know what they think, how they feel. I have individual conversations with them and I have team meetings with them and constantly getting them to share with me their thoughts. The next habit is called synergy, synergize. And that's what I was referring to earlier with teamwork, that the whole is greater than the sum of all its parts. You got to develop the habit of working well with others. We tell our players that there are three levels of growth. Dependent, when you're a child, you're dependent on your parents for everything. Independent, when you become a teenager and you think you don't need anybody, you can just do everything on your own. You can't stand to be told, oh, you need help. And then the third, the level we want our players to get to is called interdependent, meaning everybody works well together. You got to bring out the best in your teammates. And interdependency is what every team is striving for. So when you synergize, everybody's working well together. In basketball, your starters work well together. They've got good chemistry. The guys off the bench, they come in. They have good chemistry with the guys they're playing with. And the guys on the bench that don't play understand, hey, there's a very, very important team role for me. And that is I got to cheer my team on because it's about team spirit. Right? We tell the players there's four levels of commitment, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And spiritual means team spirit. Do what's best for the team. 
Physical, everybody will do. Get yourself in great shape. Show up on time. Work hard and practice. Mental is do your homework. Study your game. Study your teammates' game. Study the opponents. Be very well prepared mentally for the game. And then emotional is about controlling your emotions, not getting angry and frustrated when the coach takes you out or referee uh, makes a bad call. You got to control your emotions so you can stay poised. And then the last is, is, as I said, team spirit. That's the hardest to reach where everybody is pulling for the team. So those are the four, the leadership, the discipline, the teamwork, and the habits. I want to touch on leadership for a second. And you could probably go back to your past, but if there's been someone where you've been at Miami just because of the relevance of the people listening, who has been, or more than one, a great leader from someone you've coached who's really set that vision, motivated, inspired? Who have been some of those guys over the last 10, 11 years here at Miami? Well, I would say the young man that had the biggest impact on our basketball program as a leader was Duran Scott. I don't know how many of our fans remember him, uh, but Duran's family is from Jamaica, moved to New York. He played at Rice High School. He and K Kemba Walker, the great NBA point guard, were backcourt teammates together. Duran came to the University of Miami, had a very good freshman year, sophomore year, and then I became the head coach his junior year. And the, the first quality that you see in Duran is that he is mentally tough. He loves to compete. He listens very well. And by listening, he understands what you're expecting from him. And then he goes out and does whatever you ask him to do to the best of his ability. He was a first-team all-defensive player because he used that toughness at the defensive end of the floor. He was the leading rebounding guard, not only on our team, but I think in the ACC. And he had told me in a, a conversation his first year that his best position was point guard. But he then added... But if you need me to play anyplace else, I'll do whatever you ask, you to ask me to do. All I want to do is win. And that's leadership. He set that example for all of his teammates. And we had many occasions when I had to call him in and sit and talk with him about our team. There were actually two guys on that team that worked hand in hand, Duran Scott and Julian Gamble. In our 2012-2013 championship season, we had a number of incidents take place. The very first took place in October, just before we were to scrimmage the University of South Florida. One of our players didn't behave properly, and I, I met with our seniors, and Julian and Duran said, Coach, you can't allow that. You've got to send the message right now. That player needs to be suspended and not play in the scrimmage. Well, with that kind of support from your players, had they said, oh, no, we, got, we need to win the scrimmage, that would have put a little different spin on it. And I would have had to figure out is a better way to send the message to everybody that discipline is so important. But with Duran and Julian very much in favor of me suspending him, I suspended him and all the players on the team seniors, juniors, sophomores, and freshmen looked at each other and said, wow, if Coach L is going to suspend him for that kind of behavior, I'm never going to do that. And then in mid-January, we had another incident, and uh, one of our players walked off the court. And shortly thereafter, Duran Scott walked off the court. And I was like, where do these guys go? And then a few minutes later, Duran came back, and a few minutes later, the other player came back. And I found out afterwards, the, the player that walked out of practice first walked out because he was mad at something I said to him. Duran walked out 
and went into the locker room and told the guy, if you don't get back out there and listen to every word Coach L says, I'm going to punch your lights out. Not, I'm not sure he used that kind of vulgarity. Yeah, prob- probably he not. Might, might have used the vulgarity in there someplace. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I'm betting on that. So those two guys came back out. We had a great practice, and, and the next day we won by 27 points. So it worked. So those were the first two leaders that really elevated our program. And then the, the very quiet leader of that team was Shane Larkin. Shane was not vocal. He had a very quiet personality, but he was a killer on the court. And he had a great way with his teammates of just being nice. He set a good example by always behaving in a first-class manner. He was not someone who was going to threaten to beat you up. He was not someone that was vocal about, yeah, you got to discipline this guy. But when the chips were down, he stepped up to the plate and really demonstrated great leadership. And then you'd have to go to the next team. Guys like Eric Swope and Rafael Akabajuri, Ryan Brown were all terrific leaders. Angel Rodriguez was our ambassador, our leader, our commander, uh, our quarterback. He did everything for that team. And then Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown was that kind of Duran Scott type player and leader that you love to coach. So those were the guys that come to mind immediately. Speaking of Shane Larkin, what do you think about the new hairdo on Shane? Huh? The, he's got like the long flat. <laughs> I'm not a fan of those, but I'm a plain vanilla kind of guy anyway. I did have longer hair when I had hair in college, but uh, you know all these different hairdos, and I, they're for the youth of our, our country. I wanted to ask you something else. I don't know if you still do this. So do you still start each practice or a lot of practices with a thought of the day? Sure do. So can you explain that to the audience and also kind of where that started? Early in my head coaching career at Bowling Green State University, I was looking to improve. And uh, one of the coaches that I identified that I thought could help me was Dick Bennett. Everybody knows Tony Bennett. His son's the head coach of the University of, of Virginia. But Dick, his father, was a terrific coach in Wisconsin. First at Wisconsin, Green Bay, and then at the University of Wisconsin. So I went out and spent some time with him and learned a lot of the things And he had a very specific philosophy and practice planning was a major part of that. At the same time, I went to Chicago uh, to watch the NBA pre-draft camp and met up with Buzz Peterson. Buzz had been a terrific high school player, signed with the University of North Carolina, played uh, at North Carolina and was Michael Jordan's roommate and best friend. And uh, he got into coaching, and, and I think at the time, he may have been at Tulsa or the University of Tennessee, but he and I started to exchange ideas. And one of the things, I was an admirer of Dean Smith, a great legendary coach at the University of North Carolina, and Buzz told me that he started every practice with a thought of the day. Sometimes it was related to basketball, sometimes it was historical, sometimes motivational, but always a clear thought that the players could take into practice. So I decided then, I think it was 1993, 94, right around then, that I was going to add a thought of the day every day and ask the players to memorize it before they took the court and then to explain it when we were on the court because we gather at the center circle before starting practice every day. And where do you cultivate all your material? It's just from my life experiences, some basketball. Like today, the thought of the day was call for the ball. And you might say to yourself, what does that mean? So, well, if you want to catch the ball, you're open, you should call for it. 
because there's too many times a guy is standing there wide open, but the passer, the guy with the ball, doesn't see him. But your voice can bring attention to the passer, and he'll throw it to you. But if he never hears your voice, then he might not know you're open. So that was just today's thought of the day. And hopefully our guys will get better when they're open, that they'll call for the ball and let the, the guy with the ball know that, uh, that he should throw it to him. You know, some, some things are historical. One of our quotes is about attitude. And this is a very simple quote. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. So your attitude has to be positive. That's what we're always emphasizing to our players. Have a positive attitude. There's always two ways to look at a situation, negatively, positively. I turn the ball over. I'm mad at myself. I pout and I don't get back on defense. That's the negative reaction to what happened to you. But the reaction is worse than the mistake. The positive is I turned the ball over. I made a mistake. I'm going to make up for it by hustling back defensively, playing great defense, getting a rebound, getting a steal, and forcing a turnover myself. That's the positive way. And we're always encouraging our players to believe that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it to be positive. All right, so we're going we're gonna to go back in time here, Coach L. You grew up in the Bronx, correct? Yes. Basketball has been your life. How did you get introduced to the sport? Like, when did you fall in love with the game of basketball? Well, I have two older brothers, Bob and Greg. Greg's the older. He's 11 years older than me. My brother Bob passed away a few years ago, but he was nine years older than me. My brother Bob was highly recruited coming out of high school and signed a basketball scholarship with St. John's University in Queens, you know, a big, the Big East school. So he was recruited by Lou Conaseca, the legendary coach at St. John's, went and played for him. So my brothers are 11 and nine years older than me. When I was eight years old, they introduced me to the game in the park, teaching me how to make layups and dribble and pass and shoot. And I then joined a team in the fourth grade. I was eight and I joined a team called the Tyros. The interesting part about that team was it had a height restriction. You couldn't be over five feet tall and play on the Tyro team. So I joined the Tyro team in the fourth grade, sat on the bench, didn't play much. Fifth grade, I was a sub, played a little bit. Sixth grade, I was going to be the star player, but I grew to 5'2", and so I got cut. I didn't play organized basketball in the sixth grade. I had to wait till the seventh grade. And then in the seventh grade, I got very serious about my basketball. In the eighth grade, I was invited to try out for a basketball scholarship at Archbishop Malloy High School in Queens, New York. Two of my friends were already at Malloy. I went out there, tried out with 150 other eighth graders and was offered a scholarship, signed scholarship papers, and traveled an hour and a half one way to get to high school every day and an hour and a half back home. My mom woke me up at 6.30 in the morning. I ate the same breakfast, a bacon sandwich on white bread with mayonnaise and a chocolate eggnog. You put milk, vanilla ice cream, Nestle's Quick in a blender, spin it all up and it's like a milkshake. Oh, I'm sorry. It also had an egg in it. A raw egg was put in there. And I had that every morning for four years in high school. Nothing else, ever. No pancakes, no scrambling, no. A bacon sandwich and an eggnog every morning for four years. I woke up at 6.30. I left the house at 6.45. It took me 15 minutes to get to the bus. It was a 
about just over a half a mile walk to get to the bus stop. I took a city bus through the Bronx, over the Whitestone Bridge, through Flushing to Jamaica, Queens. It dropped me off at, at about three quarters of a mile from Malloy. I walked the rest of the way and I got to school about 8.15, 8.20 every day. School started at 8.25. So when'd you get home after practice? Practice would end at 6.30. I'd be out of the locker room by seven and I'd be home by nine. It's a big commitment. And it was the best decision I ever made. The high school coach, Jack Curran, was my role model and mentor and basically is the reason I got into coaching. So how did they find you if you're an hour and a half away? And Archbishop Malloy, if you're from New York, I know is a, a well-known basketball or high school and, and for what it's done for basketball. Was it as well-known back then? Like, so when they asked you, were you as intrigued by playing there? So that would be, the, I guess, two parts. One, how did they find you? And two, were you as intrigued when you got the invite? Well, let's first talk about Archbishop Malloy. Archbishop Malloy used to be St. Anne's Academy in New York City. They moved to Queens and, and got renamed after the Archbishop who allowed them to move to Queens, Archbishop Malloy. The coach at that time was Lou Conaseca. Lou Conaseca left in 1957 and they'd already had great players and great teams and guys were at St. John's. So he left to become an assistant at St. John's and Jack Curran replaced him in 1957. So by 1963, when I was in the eighth grade, actually, it must have been 62, because I started my freshman year in 63. So in 1962, I was invited by my friends who had already uh, attended Malloy. They were both freshmen at Malloy. And Mr. Curran, Coach Curran, asked them, is there anybody back in Parkchester, the community I grew up in, that you think is good enough to try out for a scholarship. And they said, yeah, Jim Laranaga. So we'll invite him to come out. So they invited me and I actually rode with my best friend. His name is John Carey. He eventually would become the head coach of All Hollows High School. But back then he was a freshman at Malloy and we rode out together. His dad drove us out to the high school and there were 150 other eighth graders there. And we just played all day and five guys survived it. 145 guys were sent home. And the guys that survived scrimmaged the freshman team. So I actually played against my best friend. So after watching me play that weekend, Mr. Curran called my house and offered me a scholarship by speaking to my mom. And my mom asked me if I, I really wanted to make that long trip out there. And I said, yes. We told my father and he said, absolutely not. I said, but dad, they give me a scholarship. He said, I don't care about any scholarship. We pay our own way. I said, what? <laughs> okay, that's, that ends my argument about being on a scholarship. But my two older brothers, as I mentioned, they were very familiar with Malloy and Coach Curran and the great success that Luke Conaseca had at Malloy and the great success that Mr. Curran was having. They convinced my father to let me go. And that's how I ended up at Archbishop Malloy High School in 1963. So you have said, and I know that your coach had a massive impact on your life, right? As, as a player, as an adult. So could you imagine if your dad won that argument or conversation, it just how things might've gone for you? I, there's a very good chance I never would have become a coach. Even though the local high school that I would have attended would have had a pretty good team, not nearly as good as Archbishop Malloy. And the coaching that I got at Archbishop Malloy and the competition just to earn playing time. I mean, okay, everybody who's from Miami that knows brother Kevin at Christopher Columbus High School, he was my JV coach at Malloy. 
He coached me when I was 15 years old. He was the coach, and we went undefeated 22 or 23 and 0 and won the New York City Championship for the JV team. And then Brother Kevin left New York to go to Miami and Christopher Columbus High School and became a legend in his own right. But for me, I was a 10th grader playing with several other guys who were on scholarship. My teammates, and this this will you know tell you what kind of basketball program we had. My starting point guard went to Georgetown on a basketball scholarship. The starting two guard went to Davidson on a scholarship. The three man went to Manhattan College on a scholarship. The starting four man went to the University of South Carolina and I was the starting five man and I went to Providence. The four man would become a first team high school All-American and first team college All-American and a first round draft choice. And myself and the two guard were both drafted me by the Detroit Pistons and him by the Boston Celtics. So that's how good we were. And we had a lot of guys on the bench who also played Division I basketball on scholarship. How did he shape you? You know, you said without him, you probably don't get in the coaching. How did he shape you at that age that sparked that interest that that or this is what you have wanted to do and have been able to do? If I had to describe my father in one word or a couple of words, it'd be the most disciplined man Discipline to him was everything. My father, you know, when he said, said, jump, you just jump. How high do you want me to go? Because there was no fooling around with my dad. Mr. Kern had that same approach to discipline, but in a kind of, I wouldn't say a softer way, more of an instructional way. Like this is two extreme disciplinarians. My father, the week we played All Hollows High School for the city championship my freshman year, uh, told me to raise the volume on the TV. And when I was too slow reacting, he punched me in my leg. He gave me a Charlie horse. And it ended up, I, I ended up limping the rest of the week. How we won that game, I'll never know, but we ended up winning. Mr. Kern was much more like your English teacher or your math teacher. Hey, this is what I want you to do, and this is how you do it. And if you do it correctly, he's going to say, yep, that's right. If you do it incorrectly, he's going to say, no, not quite right. Do it over. Then you don't do it right again. Okay, do it over again. Okay, we're going to stay here until you get it right. And he just make you do it over and over and over again because he was looking to develop those great habits. He wanted you to do it right the first time, but if you didn't, he wasn't going to give up on the right way. He was not going to let you slide and say, yeah, well, that was okay. He constantly used the expression, Practice does not make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. You've got to practice correctly. And that means effort and execution. So Coach Kern was a great teacher, a great role model, an extremely well-disciplined individual. It's one of the reasons why we do not use vulgarity and I do not use vulgarity in practice or games with my players. You will never hear me. None of my players have ever heard me swear at them. My high school coach, we knew each other for 50 years. I never heard him use a vulgarity. And he was a fantastic teacher and motivator. So you've been around me, Josh. Have you been to practices or a game? 
Have you ever heard me curse the players out? I have not. And I probably sat when I was courtside. I probably sat four feet from you. I can't say that for all my friends in coaching. Can you? Heard your whistle. Heard your whistle a few times. That's true. So you mentioned before you were drafted. And I did find this interesting. You were drafted out of Providence. And the way it was written that you had no intention of playing. If I have that wrong, please let me know. But I, would, I guess I would tag on to that by saying that's pretty self-aware to get right in the coaching. So I was wondering how you knew why you didn't want to give it a shot. And why did you jump right in the coaching? Well, I don't know where that comes from, but it's, it's incorrect. Okay. Well, there we go. Correct me then. And there's some truth to it in this sense. I always dreamed, like every college player, playing in the NBA. I had a very successful college career at Providence College and did get drafted by the Detroit Pistons. But I also fell in love with a beautiful young lady and asked her to marry me. And we got married right after I graduated. I graduated from Providence in June. We got married in July. And I worked to get myself in great shape so that my wife, Liz, and I would move to Detroit and I would begin an NBA career. But I signed a contract with the Pistons, showed up at training camp, played extremely well that week. And the head coach of the Pistons was Butch Van Bredekoff. He was a great coach in college at Princeton and then coached in the NBA with the Los Angeles Lakers. So there are a couple of things that led up to the tryout. I got married in July and Coach Karn, my high school coach, left my wedding and drove four of his seniors to Davidson, North, North Carolina to attend the Terry Holland basketball camp. When they got down there, camp started on a Monday and Monday afternoon, Neil McGahee, the assistant coach, accepted the assistant coaching job at Duke University. Terry Holland then asked my high school coach, is there anybody that you would recommend for the assistant coaching job? My high school coach asked him, what are you looking for? He said, well, I'd really like a guy from the New York area that could recruit the Catholic school league because Davidson's such a strong school academically and the Catholic school league is producing a lot of great players that are also good students. My high school coach said to Terry Holland, yes, as a matter of fact, I just left Jim Laranega's wedding and he and his wife are now on their honeymoon. But when he gets back, I would recommend you talk to him because he is going to be a coach. He's a heck of a coach. He's, he's already coached some. I, I would highly recommend him. Terry Holland said, oh, I met him when I was at Malloy recruiting a few years ago. I was impressed with him. So I will reach out to him. So Terry Holland then said to uh, Mr. Curran, didn't he get drafted by the Pistons? And Mr. Curran said, yeah, but he won't make it. So I know he would love to get into college coaching. What'd you find out that part of the story that Coach Curran said he wasn't going to make it? Yeah, that was after I got to Davidson. So I went on the tryout, had a great week, got invited back. But Butch Van Bredikoff called me in and said, hey, how come you don't have an agent? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you don't have an agent, do you? I said, no, they sent me a contract. I signed it. I, it was good. I liked it. I, no need, reason to hire an agent about it. He said, well, you're probably going to get cut then because everybody else has an agent who's negotiated a no-cut clause in their contract. I knew I was going to get cut. He basically told me that. So I packed my bags, 
rented a car or no, rented a U-Haul van and drove my wife's car. And we pulled the U-Haul down to Davidson. And I started my coaching career 50 years ago. Before we keep going on your journey, I just need to, can you tell me how you wooed Mrs. L? How did that come to be? I want to hear the romantic side here, coach. I graduated from high school in June and there was a place uh, in the Bronx called the Bronx Irish Center, better known as the BIC, where everyone went to dance. And you had to be 18 to get in, and I was only 17. But the guys who checked ID at the front door were friends of mine, so they let me in. My wife is just two weeks younger than me. She was just 17, but she knew the guys at the door, too. (laughs) Now, what you have to understand, I was born in Westchester Square Hospital in the Bronx. Two weeks later, my wife was born in Westchester Square Hospital. Five years later, I attended kindergarten at St. Helena's Elementary School. Five years later, she attended kindergarten at St. Helena's Elementary School. We were in the same class. Never met each other until after we graduated from high school. The class was so large, 264 kids in the kindergarten class. There were 64 in four different divisions. You had K-1, K-2, K-3, K-4. And K-1 and K-3 were in the morning. K-2 and K-4 were in the afternoon. I was in the afternoon. She was in the morning. We never ran into each other. But after we graduated from high school, we met at the BIC and danced. And that was it for me. Love at first sight. And uh, we started dating that summer. When I went off to college, we didn't see each other for two full years. And then I came home for the NIT to watch Pete Maravich play. And we ran into each other again. We dated April, May, June, July, August, and in September got engaged, married July 17th, 1971. 7-1-7-7-1. It's an easy anniversary date to remember. Our 50th anniversary was in July. July 17th, 1971. So congratulations. Thank you. So you coach, but then you, you leave for Belgium, right? And be like, like a player coach. So how did, why do you leave? How does that come to be? So... Uh, Terry Holland enjoyed great success, left to become the head coach of Virginia, but I had just bought a house and my wife just had our our oldest son, Jay, and Terry was moving to Virginia and I I just didn't want to move. So we stayed at Davidson for two more years, but then I got the itch to play. Dick Toth came back from Belgium, called me and said, hey, can you help me get into coaching? And I said, I thought you were playing pro ball overseas. He said, yeah, but I've been there for three years. That's enough for me. I said, really, man, because I'm thinking about trying to get to play again. He said, take my spot. So he called the president of the club, and I only had one condition. If I'm going to go over there to play, I want to be the player coach. And the president of the club said, great, we're only paying you one salary. (laughs) We don't have to pay a coach. We're, We're hiring you to be a player coach. And that's what I did for one year. And did you quickly realize that that's not what you wanted to do, or did you kind of get it out of your system by playing? It was a very unique experience. My wife and I were married and had a son. Jay was now a year and a half. We're living in what used to be a paint store. They converted a paint store into an apartment complex right behind the arena, uh, what they called the sport hall. And so I didn't just coach my team, the pro team. I had a, I didn't realize this. I had to coach the eight youth teams. So had practice for the eight to 10 year olds, the 10 to 12 year olds, the 12 to 14 year olds, 14 to 16, 16 to 18, the 18 to 20 and the pros and the women's team. I coached all of them like every day. It would be the young kids in the afternoons after school, 
we'd have the the men at night. Like we'd start practice at eight o'clock at night. That was probably you probably had enough of that after one year, right? Yeah, that that was quite a learning experience. So you're like, I got to get back to the states. I called Dave Gavitt, my college coach, who's the head coach of Providence still. He made a phone call to Milt Peppel, the athletic director at American International College in Springfield, Massachusetts, and talked Milt into giving me an interview. And then he really talked him into hiring me. So on May, May 1st, 1997, I became the head coach of American International College, a Division II school. Mascot name? Yeah, the Yellow Jackets. The AIC Yellow Jackets. There we go. So was there any consideration to maybe trying to go the assistant, come back to be an assistant at a, like, why'd you choose that to be a head coach there as maybe an assistant coach latching on to a, what we would consider now a power five program or something like that? Well, there were a couple of things. Uh, Dave Gavitt was the one helping me. And he also recommended some assistant coaching jobs, including the one at Providence. He was looking for a coach and the University of Connecticut was looking for an assistant. And so I never really got a shot at either of those two jobs because those head coaches decided on someone before I even got back from Belgium. Had they waited, maybe I would have had a chance. But AIC was the only one that was still open in May. That was the one I got. I imagine that that wasn't a long-term plan for you, no? You're always thinking ahead, so I imagine there had to be some thought process of what the next steps would be. In actuality, I loved coaching in the Division II level. I loved my job and was there for two years when the phone rang and it was Terry Holland, the head coach of the University of Virginia. And he was in the midst of recruiting Ralph Sampson. And he called me and said, I want you to come down here and help me recruit Ralph Sampson and help us win a national championship. And I said, no, I'm very happy here at AIC. He said, no, I'm sending a plane to get you. I said, you what? He said, I'm sending a private plane to pick you up. You and Liz fly down here and see what we have to offer. I sent a plane, Liz and I, Jumped on it, flew down, and I was like, wow, this is what the ACC is like. And after that, that weekend in Charlottesville, accepted the assistant coaching job at the University of Virginia and started uh, following Ralph Sampson around for the last two months of his recruitment. What was that like? Because he, right, I mean, he was something that the sport hadn't seen, right? Ralph was seven foot four. He was ranked either first or second in the country. He and Sam Bowie. And they played in all-star games. Back then, there was no limit to the all-star games. Now kids are limited to just two all-star games that they can play in. But back then, Ralph must have played in, I don't know, six, eight, ten. And I just traveled all over the place following him. He played in D.C. in the Capitol Classic. He played in Kutcher's in upstate New York in an All-American game. Went to Chicago, played in a game there. He was flying all over the place, and I was just following him. And the NCAA rules were very, very different back then. Now you're only limited to the number of times you can see a, a kid play. Back then it was unlimited. So could you maybe put in the words what a dominant force he was when you guys got him and what he did for your program? Well, I think uh, fans who follow college basketball might be surprised to learn that the University of Virginia, prior to the arrival of Terry Holland in 1975, had not had a winning season. They had not won. I think they had one. Barry Parkhill's year, I think they had a winning season. So they started playing basketball like in 1915. And in 1975, they had like one winning season. And then Terry Holland took over and Virginia was put on the map. He and his staff did a great job. And then the next step was signing a great player like Ralph Sampson. Once UVA got Ralph, 
They were now nationally ranked. Three of Ralph's four years, we were number one in the country for eight to 12 weeks of the season. We, we went 23-0 and 0 at one point. We were a, a dominant team. Ralph Sampson is, to this day, one of the very few National Player of the Year three consecutive years. Ralph's sophomore, junior, and senior year in college, he was the National Player of the Year. Now kids don't even stay four years. A lot of times they will stay three or even two. But Ralph was, was the dominant college player of his day and probably would be you know, they're doing the 75th anniversary of the NBA. He would have been on that team had he not sustained such severe injuries. So you had mentioned in episode one, just it was your life's dream to coach in the ACC. As a head coach, and you were coaching as an assistant back then, the ACC back then was, right, it was, it was everything, wasn't it? I mean, you scouted Michael Jordan, did you not? You must have. Yes. What was the scouting report on MJ? Well, here's, here's the interesting thing about the ACC. And, and I'm kind of a traditional kind of guy anyway. So it might surprise people. The growth of the ACC might be very good financially for the league, but the ACC as a basketball league back in the late 70s and early 80s was dominant. They were awesome. And then the Big East used that role model to create the Big East League. They did exactly what the ACC did. The ACC only had eight teams. It was Maryland, Virginia, the four Carolina schools, Duke, Carolina, Wake Forest, and NC State, that's six. Clemson, seven, and Georgia Tech, eight. That was it. From Atlanta to D.C., the footprint of the ACC was just in the South. And the players who were attracted to it were all tremendous players. We mentioned Ralph Sampson, but he played against James Worthy, another player that was the first player chosen against Michael Jordan, against Lenny Bias, against all these great college players who all played in the ACC at that time. But the talent was not as widespread as you see today. So as far as I was concerned, it was a highlight to watch all these great players play night in and night out. Wasn't it also a one-bid league? Or you had to win the tournament, right? No, by that time, it changed in 1974 or five, and it became a two-bid league. And then they opened it up for everyone because the ACC had like, you know, four or five teams in the top 20. So, you know, the NCAA in its wisdom finally said, hey, probably should open up for multiple bids. Any good MJ stories from uh, coaching against them? You know, we never had a shot at him. Some people said, oh, Michael always wanted to go to Virginia. No, I, I don't believe that. He wore those Carolina shorts underneath his Chicago Bulls uniform because, I mean, he his dream once he became the player that was so highly sought after, he came down, I believe, to Carolina or NC State, but to stay at home because he's from Wilmington, North Carolina. The interesting thing about Michael as a college player, as great as he was, he was not a long-distance shooter. He was more of a guy who played with his back to the basket. That patented turnaround jump shot that he made a million times in the NBA that Kobe Bryant studied and learned and then did the same thing. That was really Michael's go-to move in college. Ultimately, you take your, well, I guess it'd be your second job, right? Head coaching, or maybe third if we count Belgium. So you decide on Bowling Green. Why was that the right spot then? You know, I'd been offered other head coaching jobs and turned them down because I didn't think it was the right fit. But I was 36 years old. I had the itch to be a head coach again. And I thought Bowling Green in the Mid-American Conference was a good situation for me to get started. 
It was a small town. I had two children at that time. Jay and John were 10 and five. I wanted a very safe community to raise my children. We wanted to be in a, a situation where, although the league was very good, Bowling Green had been down, and I thought we could improve that, league, uh, improve that team and, and compete with the better teams in the conference. When I was in high school, I knew that they had had some great players. Nate Thurman and Butch Comines, who both ended up playing in the NBA. So I was familiar with them and felt like, okay, we, we might be able to get the Bowling Green program back to that the heyday of Bowling Green basketball. And so in 1986, we packed our bags, moved our family to Bowling Green, Ohio. So I know you, I know you had the kind of the, the Belgium thing and American International College, but all the things you've talked about on the last episode and this episode about what you believe in as a coach, your philosophy, your principles, the ACC attitude commitment class, how much of that was starting to formulate there? Like how much did you start to sort of really get some clarity on how you were going to operate as a head coach and run your programs? Well, there was a moment that really changed my life. My dad was dying of cancer in New York, in the Bronx. My brothers and I flew to the Bronx to be with him on his last days. At that point in time, I was really struggling to figure things out. And my brothers really encouraged me to read self-help books, philosophy books, books that you can learn from. And one of the books was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So I got back home. I started reading a lot of books on leadership. I started reading a lot of books on business. There's an author, John C. Maxwell, who's, who's a brilliant writer. And then I went to the Final Four that year and ran into a gentleman uh, by the name of Frank Arnold. He had been the head coach of BYU, and he was the assistant coach for John Wooden at UCLA. And we had become friends previously. And he was at a coaching now and working with the Franklin Daily Planner. So I, I told him about my issues and told him I'm starting to read a lot more. And he said, well, you need to do our seminar. So I did the seminar and learned an awful lot about organizational skills. So at the same time, I'm reading Stephen Covey's book. I'm attending the seminar about Franklin Daily Planner. And unbeknownst to me, like two or three years later, that company is known as Franklin Covey. That was, I don't know if it still is, one company. They merged. And that's exactly what I did. I merged those two concepts. The Franklin Daily Planner, planning and being proactive and planning everything, writing everything down. Now I've got everything in my phone with the seven habits of highly effective people, of being proactive, of begin with the end in mind. And all those things, they all fit well. And from that moment on, I started to write down every goal that I had. Offensive goals, defensive goals, goals of where I wanted to travel and see the world, uh, what kind of jobs I'd be interested in, how I could prepare myself for those, how I could help my players to prepare themselves for life after basketball. Everything started to come together for me. I was in my early 40s. I was 43 years old, reading nonstop, day after day after day, with all these leadership books, philosophy books, Stephen Covey's books and writing everything down and studying and helping my players become better players. As you started to do that, did things start to turn for you? As a, uh, Did the performance of the team start to turn as you were investing that much time into developing yourself in, 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 those, sort of, in those ways, so to speak? Yeah, no, there was no question that at that same time, I went to visit Dick Bennett, and Dick Bennett shared with me his philosophy and how he developed it. 
And that's, that's all I needed. I was on the same page with him. I didn't adopt his words, but if you go to John Paul Jones Arena on the University of Virginia campus, uh, this beautiful state-of-the-art facility, you will see Tony Bennett's philosophy in words, the six words that they built their, their program on. Attitude, commitment, and class is kind of de a derivative of that. It's not the same, not the same words. I had adopted those words before I met with, with Dick. But once I met with Dick, I knew exactly what I needed to do. It's called the Butler Way. Josh, the interesting part about Dick Bennett's philosophy is that before I went on the trip, I called Barry Collier, who was the head coach of Butler, and asked him if he'd like to go with me and pick Dick Bennett's brain about his philosophy. And he said, yes. So we went. When we left, we both were thrilled at the time Dick gave us and how much we learned. We took it back to our programs. Barry then adopted everything and called it the Butler way. Wasn't Dick, this is the Dick Bennett way, but no, no, no. We're <laughs> call it the Butler way. And Dick had five words, humility, passion, unity, servanthood, thankfulness. And then one was added. I'm not sure if Tony added it or Brad Stevens added it or Barry Collier added himself accountability. So humility is how you feel about yourself. Passion is how you feel about what you do. Unity is how you work with others. Servanthood is how you make others better. And thankfulness is how you deal with frustration and success. Accountability is how you handle your own responsibilities. So if you take my philosophy, attitude, it's like, like humility, how you feel. Commitment, the four levels of commitment, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. That's basically what those others are. And then class is about accountability. Class is about behavior. And are you accountable for your behavior? So they are very, very similar, cut out of the same cloth. Dick developed that philosophy, shared it with Barry Collier and I, and then Barry shared it with his assistants. Brad Stevens ended up coming through the Butler Way system, and he used it throughout his career. Tony Bennett left the NBA to become his dad's assistant, developed his philosophy, and brought it from Washington State to the University of Virginia and is enjoying tremendous success. And your, and your son and Brad Stevens have worked together. Yes, nine years or eight years, eight years. You pushed Bowling Green in the right direction. Your career, you know, is you said you were in a not so good spot. Now you're in a better spot. And George Mason, I don't well, how does George Mason come to be? We've talked about in the first episode, you plant yourself at different places. So you'd been at Bowling Green a while. Why was uh, George Mason the right next step? At Bowling Green, in our last year there, which was our 11th season, we won the regular season championship. Our starting point guard would be the fourth player chosen in the draft. My son, Jay, would graduate that year. We had a heck of a team. Those guys graduated. We won more games than they had won in something like 30 or 40 years. But I, I, I was born and raised on the East Coast. I come from New York, coached at Davidson and uh, at Virginia. And uh, most of my network of people was on the East Coast. In fact, half our team at Bowling Green was from Ohio and half our team was from New York. So when George Mason opened, that was in Virginia, not far from UVA. So I felt there was a connection. It's right near Washington, D.C., where all the best high school players on the East Coast are, are growing up these days, the Kevin Durants and what have you. 
I, I just applied for the job. I called the athletic director and just said, you know, I'd be very interested. And he said, oh, I know your success. I knew you as a college player. I played against you in college. Come, come Thursday. It was like a Monday. Come in on Thursday and I'll interview you. I went in, I interviewed with a, a committee of about 10 people. It must have gone well because they brought me back for a second interview and I met with the president and the athletic director and the president put their heads together and said, this is the guy. Now, do I have this right? Before you got to Mason, seven consecutive losing seasons and last place in the conference four years in a row? George Mason had had seven consecutive losing seasons and had finished last, last four years in a row and were the losingest program in the conference history, the Colonial Athletic Association. And that's the program you picked? Well, I picked the location and the, the opportunity. You don't get a chance to just, you know, apply for a job. Coaches, you know, that are doing a good job are keeping their jobs. <laughs> but, I mean, that's a, that's, an, that's a pretty steep climb. Well, what I expressed to our, our staff, and I said that, look, our job is to develop friendships, to be inclusive, and bring everybody into our program as soon as possible. And the coach is like, well, what do you mean? I said, you got to recruit high school coaches, recruit AAU coaches, re recruit faculty, recruit students, recruit everybody. I met with the team, and this is a true story. I said to them, hey, is George Melnick on our team? And they all looked around, and they said, coach, we, we don't know who George Melnick is. And I said, you don't know George. You see him almost every day. He's the plumber. He's in the Patriot Center, our home arena, and you see him all the time. Is he on our team? And the players laughed and said, no. I said, well, which one of you guys is then going to fix it when there's no hot water in the showers? And they looked at each other. And I said, they said, well, I guess it's George. I said, well, then he's on our team. Anybody that can help us is on our team. Your teachers, your faculty in your classes, you got to recruit them, get to know them, develop friendships with them. We invited every high school coach to bring their high school teams, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, to come watch us practice. AAU coaches, we invited them to our practices. We set up in a very short period of time a fan base where, now you have to understand, at George Mason, they were only averaging 2,000 fans a game. And the arena had a capacity of 10,000 seats. It's bigger than the Watsco Center called the Patriot Center. I said, we got to fill this arena. The only way to do that is recruit. So we started a camp. And when, when a kid comes to camp, his parents have to drop him off. So we recruited the parents. We started inviting people after games to meet at Brian's Grill, the local restaurant, and I would tell stories. That group was called the Insiders because they wanted all the inside scoop. So after every home game, my wife and I would go there and the place would be packed. And they would just be wanting to talk about the game, who played well, who played bad. What are you going to do about your next opponent? And so we raised a lot of money from those insiders. And we were able then to do things like we were the first and only team at that time to do a charter flight. So we were playing Wilmington and losing to them because we had an eight-hour bus trip to Wilmington. And guys were exhausted, cramped in all these bus we traveled in. One night we were in a snowstorm. And we had someone... Uh, come with a different bus because the bus broke down and we had to change buses at four o'clock in the morning. So we decided to charter, but that charter cost a lot of money. We raised the money and flew to Wilmington and beat them. So there were a lot of things, but we were very inclusive and brought a lot of people into the program. Give me the name of the restaurant again that you guys met at? Brian's Grill. So there was a, a hamburger named after you, yes? Yes. 
The Laranaga burger. Can you name the ingredients? That was a cheeseburger. Ah, oh, but it had banana. According to my research, yes, honey- it's true. Yes, it had all those things. <laughs> all right, couple of quick hitters. Being in DC must have been cool outside of coaching, right? I mean, that's a fact. That's a. I love the city. A fantastic city, no question about it. Give me like a cool memento that you. I mean, more a handful of mementos, a cool memento from the DC complex, right? That you were, you know, able to sort of put yourself in being a. About a letter from President George Bush the first. I ran into him at a restaurant called The Palm. We said hello, and later on he found out that I was friends with his son Marvin, and uh, he wrote me a beautiful letter. And your kids got to play basketball with President Obama? Do I have, is that right? That is correct. President Obama, he uh, campaigned at George Mason University to speak to the young Democrats on campus, and I was his host. I spent time with him on several occasions. And then uh, my sons were invited to play pickup ball with him. And I went to watch my sons play with the president. They were on the president's pickup ball team. That was quite an experience. I sat with the guy with the nuclear weapons, Lieutenant Colonel Kalinsky. He uh, had the, the briefcase with the nuclear weapons in it. How was, Obama, how was President Obama's jump shot? Yeah, he's a point guard. He's more, more deliberate. Oh, uh, distributor. Okay. He's a decision maker. Yeah, good decision maker. <laughs> Give me the last play call you stole from your son. Well, you're going to see it this year. The Celtics ran it all the time. It's a backdoor play. Uh, We call it Bruce Brown. We named it after Bruce because we ran it when Bruce was here as well. It's a favorite of the Boston Celtics, and they've been doing it long before my son even went to work for him. But it's something we like to do from time to time. You said you like to set goals, right? You start at the end. You mentioned that earlier from reading the book. So if you care to share, what are your goals for this year's team? What does the end look like? Well, the goals for the, for the team are always the same. We want to put ourselves in position to have a great non-conference and get ourselves ranked sometime in December going into conference play. We want to be competing for the ACC regular season championship. And we won't know that until probably you know late February or early March, whether or not we've been able to accomplish that. And then we want to play, uh, win the ACC tournament and play in in the postseason. So that's that's what it is every year. Coach L, thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks for all the storytelling. All right. Good talk with you.